The Cycling Anthology. Great writing about the world's best sport. This is our podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the first ever podcast of the Cycling Anthology. This is going to be an irregular podcast that will appear from time to time around the publication of the the latest anthology. We're about to launch the first edition of this new publishing venture which features some of the hopefully best cycling writing of the year. My name is Richard Moore and I'm joined today by Lionel Burney, the Christopher Hitchens of cycling journalism who's contributed uh, a chapter on uh, on the three Grand Tours in 2012. All, all the pieces have a, have a sort of 2012 theme to them. And also Daniel Freib, the Michael Lewis of cycling journalism, who, who's written about the Moneyball theory as applied to cycling, how we use statistics and data to evaluate cyclists. So there's a lot of really good stuff in the anthology. We're going to cover some of it today, talking about Daniel's piece in particular, and we're going to have some general cycling discussion as well, so hopefully it will be an interesting listen. I'm sure it will with these two. This is the Cycling Anthology Podcast. Now read the book. Available from cyclinganthology.com I think we had a little musical interlude there. This is all much more professional than podcasts I've taken part in in the past in the Tour de France, which generally happen in restaurants and cars and things, but Lionel Burney, who is the whose brainchild this is, this this cycling anthology, brings a slightly more professional touch to proceedings. Um, Lionel, you came up with the idea for the, the anthology, um, and you and Ellis Bacon, who would join us today if he wasn't sunning himself in <laughs> California as we speak, probably lying by a pool, drinking his third mojito of the day. But Lionel, you you came up with the idea for the anthology. What was your what was your kind of intention with it? Well, the intention was to try and gather together uh, pieces of writing by some of the best cycling writers there are around. Plus and Daniel. And yeah, to be exactly. <laughs> including plus you and Daniel. Um, <laughs> to be fair to Ellis, he, uh, he'd come up with a very similar idea for a, sort of an online collection of uh, kind of random assortment of pieces, um, which he is hoping to proceed with in, in the new year. So I contacted Ellis and said, how about we collaborate on this um, venture, try and uh, persuade some of the best writers to think about submitting a standalone chapter and build it into a collection. And then hopefully over time they will grow into a series of eagerly anticipated books that cover a broad range of, of subjects so, all about professional cycling since Ellis is, is not here there was no need to give him any credit at all so that's very big of you to do that but tell us who's in the who's in the first edition well in the first edition there's the three in of goal. us in, the, yeah, run through the lineup. Uh, the, the first edition we've got William Fotheringham who's just ghost written Bradley Wiggins book My Time and he uh, takes a a slightly different look at how Wiggins won the tour and he, he goes into quite a lot of depth about the theories behind um, turning Bradley Wiggins into a Grand Tour winner. It's, it's a really interesting look at the steps they took, how methodical they were in working towards their eventual goal. We've got Rupert Guinness from Australia. Um, he's looked at the uh, debut season for Green Edge, which is entertaining and revealing and uh, an interesting uh, all in equal measure. Um, we've got Samuel Apt, the legendary Samuel Apt, who's he's he's taken a, a slightly quirky subject, which is the aborted, um, perhaps publicity stunt comeback by Mario Cipollini um, when he was talking about possibly riding the Giro as a lead-out man for uh, Guardini, wasn't it? Yep. We've got the two of you, Richard. You, your chapter. The is, two uh, of me. We've, we've got Richard, <laughs> Richard Moore. Um, his. Your chapter is about uh, yeah, about. Come on, Lionel. The, it's well, about you've read it, haven't you? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, it's about um, the. Uh, it's about. It's about Robert Miller. It's about Robert Miller. It's about Robert Miller and pondering the theory of how he would fit in at Team Sky, and particularly looking at the emergence of Jonathan Tien and Locke as a kind of specialist climber, um, and wondering whether the the numbers approach of Team Sky would accommodate a slightly more maverick 
um, rider. And talking of numbers, we've got Daniel, we'll talk about his chapter in a, a lot more depth shortly. Um, but the way professional cycling is evolving, people are looking for a bit more bang for their buck and are realising that perhaps riders are not assessed and, um, and paid for according to quite the right criteria. There's Jeremy Whittle has looked at... Uh, Owen the Slot is in there, isn't o- he? Owen, yeah, Owen Slot's written about Victoria Pendleton and um, Anna Mears' rivalry and how it was inevitable that they would that clash mm. at the London Olympics. Jeremy Whittle has looked at the fallout from the Lance Armstrong um, scandal and how it's... It, what, what Lance Armstrong scandal? <laughs> the Lance Armstrong right, scandal, okay. the, the latest one. Right. And there's loads, loads more. It's a great read, I, although I am biased. And where is it going to be available? At the moment, it's available on cyclinganthology.com for the princely sum of £7.99, which includes delivery. I mean, you can't say fair enough. Wow, that's incredible. bargain. And our good friends at prendas.co.uk are also selling it for us. Splendid, splendid. We were going to chat, the three of us, about cycling writing as as a subject you know we're all roughly the same age but what what, what? No, no, wait, no, hang sorry, on Daniel, hang on back up Daniel you're you're a bit younger <laughs> you're a couple of years younger different generation um, well I suppose you are we're we're children of the 80s you're a child of the 90s Very I guess so, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're you're part of the doping generation yeah. the first tour I watched was Lionel, Bjarne Reef. Lionel Lionel and me are, are from a slightly purer uh, period um, but what you know, Lionel? When you when you started, or Daniel? We've heard enough from you, Lionel. Oh. Um, Daniel, I mean, when you began to follow cycling, what was it about cycling writing that captured your attention? I have to ask Jeremy Whittle. He's one of the contributors. I'm not sure. Uh, really? Well, no. I mean, Jeremy was very much. He was very instrumental in me getting into it. Um, but in I, terms of as a, as a cycling fan, did you know? Were you somebody who read the magazines? Was were there any yeah, writers? Yeah, absolutely. That I mean, I. You know, I, I sort of a self-proclaimed Euro pont. Um, I was interested. I was very passionate about anything to do with France and Italy. And at that time, um, the, the power base of professional cycling was really in those countries. And you know, I did languages at school and university. And at the same time, you know, rode my bike. Was very, very passionate about cycling. And you know, one sort of segued into the other, really. And, you know, I would read La Gazzetta and L'Equipe. And, you know, this was kind of before there was, there was much coverage at all about cycling. You know, you couldn't, couldn't find a report on a cycling race for love nor money in the English press. So if you did speak foreign languages, then it opened up a lot of doors. And, you know, it was a whole different world for me. So, so were there any writers for those papers you particularly liked? I mean, in French or Italian language? Um, you know, Angelo Zomignan, actually, was very, very good. Um, who subsequently became the director of the Giro. Um... And, you know, just for the magazines, guys like maybe Enzo Vicinati in Fabici Sport. And, yeah, and, and books I read, I'm, I'm not really sure that I read that many, many cycling books at that time. There weren't that many available. Paul Kimmage's Rough Ride was one of the first, certainly. Mm. Um, but really, there weren't too many, were there? That's the thing. I mean, the anthology is almost a product of the, or an inevitable consequence of the explosion in cycling writing, cycling books over the last decade for which we probably all owe something of a debt to Lance Armstrong, and it's not about the bike, though we may be loath to admit it. Certainly, I mean, there has been an explosion. I mean, I'm thinking back to the late 80s and early 90s when the late great sports pages on Charing Cross, just off Charing Cross Road on Caxton Walk was there, um, a, a specialist sports yeah. bookshop in the centre of London, and, and I'd take a trip up there, and the cycling books were expensive and scarce, but you, I'd go up there and I'd buy one and read it and I've brought a selection of my early cycling books with me um, and it was like opening a door to you know another world because there wasn't anywhere <coughs> else there wasn't anywhere else that you could gather much kind of historical information about the races but also putting things into a kind of historical context I mean I've never seen I had never seen any footage of Eddie Merckx riding a bike but I felt like I knew all about him Mm. from reading books like European Cycling by Noel Henderson and the winning um, magazine's fabulous world of cycling books which featured interviews with him about the edited by Kenny Pride another contributor to the cycling anthology that's right and so the picture of the world of cycling that I built up came from the written word not from Mm. not from uh, television and that's traditionally the way that cycling was as a sport was was communicated to the 
the public, wasn't in it? In the I mean, UK, not oh, so much elsewhere. But I mean, it was invented, you know, Tour de France was the well, yeah, vehicle for a, a newspaper. Yeah. So it's always been that close marriage between yeah. the written word and, and cycling um, as a sport. And, and because I think so much of it happens beyond the view of the public, we don't yeah. see it still now, despite television cameras being everywhere, you don't see an awful lot of what goes on. It does leave an awful lot of scope to a writer to explain what's happened. I think you're right, and the problem the problem with the televisual age is that people assume that they know the story yeah. of everything that they've watched on TV or perhaps read about on the internet. And I think the the joy of all of the chapters in in our collection is that they go a little bit deeper and and take a different perspective, um, look at things from a, a from a different angle, and and fill in a lot of the gaps that television can't actually provide. Yeah, exactly. and whereas before, when I was getting into cycling, reading a lot, reading these books, um, you're really your only insight into, say, Greg LeMond's character would be either Samuel App's book here um, or 30-second interviews on Channel 4's Tour de France coverage. That was all you had about yeah. that. That was the only I insight mean, you had into that man's character. If I can interject to that point, because Sam Abd is a contributor, it's a, it's a real thrill to be in the same book as Sam Abd, to be sharing pages with him, in a sense, because he is uh, somebody whose books in the 80s, Greg Lamont, Incredible Comeback being the most obvious example, um, and his writing generally was, was something that I really enjoyed, and you know, his collection of writings, what, Off to the Races? Uh, off to the Races, yeah, I think. It's a fantastic um, uh, compendium of his writing over the years you can just dip in and out of. And it's just small articles, little vignettes, really, from races over his 30, 40 years of covering cycling. And it, he, he just has a really dry sense of humour, a real eye for detail. His reports in the International Herald, Herald Tribune would often sort of stray from the, the beaten track which is, is something you can do in cycling again the, the interesting thing about Sam um, which I think is what Sam managed to do and it was perhaps um, you know perhaps came very naturally to him but he managed to retain that sense of being an outsider he mm. was always he was very much an American an English you know kind of an American writing on um, yeah. a, an alien world yeah. and, and you got that sense and um, very clearly in Sam's writing while you know it was also very well informed as well he, I mean, you know, when he began following cycling, which was when he moved to Paris in the 70s and almost stumbled upon the sport, he was quite high up in the New York Times and the International Tribune, but he had a hard job selling it to his editors, you know. He told me about his sports editor at the New York Times saying, Sam, you've got to stop writing about guys whose names end in CKX. And he said, ah, you know, you can do a good Sam impression, Daniel. You know, what did he say? He said, ah, you know, uh, uh, but the world's best cyclist is his name ends in CKX. And he said, oh, I don't care. What is he? He's a Belgian. None of our readers are Belgian. You know, is that, is that kind of thing. But he was always, he wasn't, he wasn't interested either in, he was interested in explaining this foreign sport to yeah. an English-speaking readership. Jonathan Boyer was an American around at the time. He wasn't interested in writing about Jonathan Boyer because Jonathan Boyer wasn't achieving anything. When Le Mans came along, he obviously began writing about him because he was at, at the top of the sport. But yeah, he, he had a very kind of almost dispassionate and unnationalistic take on it. And he, he, he maintained that. I mean, yeah. we, we got to know him a little bit in his final few years in the press room. And he, he's a real character wrestling with his computer every day, trying, yeah. to, trying to get a laptop to work. Mm. And I remember... One of the great stories about Sam, I don't know whether it's... This is true, but when Jan Ulrich, I think, won the Tour for the first time, and he, or maybe his first Tour de France, um, I think he won the won the time trial in Saint Emilion in 1996, and he came into the press room, and because um, the, the riders always used to come into the press room. Now they have video press conferences, um, but Jan started talking, answering his first question, and of course he answered in German. And Sam from the back of the room piped, "Yeah." What a lot of bullshit <laughs> in English, in English. <laughs> uh, I remember bumping into him. It might have been his final tour in 2007 when it began in London. I'm not sure if 07 or 08 was the last tour that he covered the whole tour, but I bumped into him in London the day after the triumphant prologue time trial where two million people had lined the streets. And I, I was kind of infused by this positive vibe that there'd been. And I said to Sam, oh, Sam, wasn't it wonderful? Two million people and not a single arrest. 
according to the, the, the media today. And Sam, who was like Woody Allen, this dry as dust sense of humour, goes, ah, what's wrong with your police? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a great character. So it's, it's wonderful that he's contributed something to the book. I, I was also a big admirer of David Walsh, or still am, obviously, but his writing on cycling in the 80s, he was one of the few English language writers writing at length on cycling. He'd write in the magazines, his, he wrote a book about um, Sean Kelly, and some of his writing as well in the, in, the, in the Sunday Times, you know, as I was getting into journalism in the, in the mid to late 90s, uh, and reading it again in, in the new e-book that's been released by the Sunday Times, reading back through some of his, his journalism, you know, tremendous writer, really nice, light touch he had, and a beautiful way before it, you know, he was writing exclusively about the doping, um, he, 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 he wrote beautifully about cycling as a sport, and, and about these, the issues that obviously affect cycling and, 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 and harm it so, so badly. Um, so he, he was somebody that I who's writing I really enjoyed as well maybe maybe he'll feature in a future anthology he, could, he may well I mean another guy who I'd quite like to feature in a future edition would be Jeff Connor who wrote Wide-Eyed and Legend I was going to say yeah absolutely um, which I, I think was probably the first cycling book I bought and read um, it tells the story of the ANC Halfords team in the 1987 Tour de France. Again, you're, what you're talking about, Sam, retaining that sense of being an outsider. Mm. Jeff really was an outsider who, over the course of three and a half weeks on the Tour de France, became a part of that team. And what we in the, in Cycle Sports <coughs> magazine um, a couple of years ago, we did a countdown of the 50 greatest cycling books written in the English language. And we made that number one, and we got a little bit of stick for it because it isn't a work of sort of literary purity, but as a story, it is, I think, unrivaled because it takes you right to the heart of the Tour de France at a time when almost nobody had ever done that. It's, a rollicking, it's a rollicking good read. Some of it you read and you wonder if this is this could this possibly be true? Um, the story of the ANC. Uh, company execs coming out to the Tour de France and leaving their dog in the car in 40 degree heat and having to bury it in the hotel garden <laughs> because it died. I mean, no, I and Jeff, an Jeff amazing, had to, yeah. a lot of a lot of cycling writers would have left that kind of thing out. Yeah. But actually, it says yeah. more about that team and yeah. what was yeah. Yeah. how that team worked. Yeah. Yeah. And because he was a journalist, he put that in and. And I think, although it isn't perhaps the most elegantly expressed piece of writing... I mean, Jeff's a very good writer, though, and he wrote a fantastic biography of Dougal Hassan, the the Scottish climber. I ended up working alongside Jeff at Scotland Sunday newspaper, you know, 15 years or so after I'd read um, Wide-Eyed and Legless. And it took a few weeks to click the name, to to click with me, that this was Jeff Connor who'd written Wide-Eyed and Legless. I think it's a terrific book. Uh, And a real... It was one of the first. And, And he happened to be on the tour the year of course that Stephen Roach won it which was a, a kind of subplot to the, the ANC Halford story there's also quite a lot of Shane Sutton in there who you know his, whose character comes out a little bit although he was only on the race for a week yeah. um, his character does come out a little bit in the story and he's obviously somebody who remains very significant in the world of cycling um, right well we that's us probably covered cycling writing we've, it, we've, we've covered it in 12 minutes it, I mean what it, more can we what more can it. we say there's a lot more to say actually but the Cycling Anthology. Great writing about the world's best sport. We're going to talk now in, in a little bit of depth about one of, the, one of the contributions to the anthology, and that is Daniel Freib's chapter on cyclonomics. Cyclonomics, which is, you've kind of adapted the, some of the theories in Moneyball yeah. to cycling, or tried to see how some of those data-based analyses of baseball could be possibly applied to cycling. Uh, can you explain a little bit? I've read your chapter. It's excellent. Daniel, well done. There's a lot of Bob Stapleton in there, but other than that, it's very good. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the, the chapter, where you were coming from with it? Well, first of all, uh, Moneyball is the story of the Oakland Athletics baseball team who, uh, let me get the timeline right, it, Around about the start of the 1990s, I think, were one of the richest teams in baseball, but performing very poorly. And there was a takeover, new owners came in, and they introduced a kind of austerity measures and decided they weren't going to spend as much money, but they wanted the team to still be competitive. 
and one of what well, there were two executives really involved but the more famous one Billy Bean um, he implemented a system which relied heavily on analysis of data for two the, the two real prongs to it one was identifying value in players so um, sort of picking up players who had previously been undervalued um, re-evaluating their game so perhaps they weren't hitting as many home runs as other people but you know they were contributing in other ways and the other strand to it was basically defining or redefining what it was that won baseball matches um, previously there was you know, certain misconceptions about what it was that made a team <coughs> successful and you know, the, these theories have since been kind of appropriated by other sports other sports teams in football, there's a, a real growing trend, um, a, a growing kind of uptake of data analysis among the industry. Premier- in it as well. Yeah, there's a whole industry. I wanted to explore to what extent this has been taken on in cycling, to what extent it might become a big part of the way teams analyse riders and analyse their own performance in future. But but there are challenges with that, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, I mean one of the one of the central problems is that. In cycling, it's, it's quite difficult to define success, and success means different things for different teams. You know, a corporate sponsor comes on board to get exposure for their logo, so success for one sponsor might be as simple as getting their riders on TV a lot, getting a lot of breakaways. For another team, for instance, HTC, you mentioned Bob Stapleton, HTC, they decided that um, they were almost ruled out from success in major tours by two things. One was budget, that major tour riders tended to be um, overpriced. The other thing was doping, which at the time when they came in, um, there was still a lot of was a you know, fairly heavy-duty yeah. doping going on. So they decided that they would try and win as many races as possible, which they did very successfully. And then for a third group, um, success really boils down to um, performances, results in specific races, the big races, so you know, Grand Tours. Um, or local classic. races, even. Yeah, and local races. But that has been, traditionally, that third group, and um, the majority have fallen into that category, the majority of teams. What's interesting is that it links to the point we made earlier about why cycling writing has always flourished. It's because there's so much of the, of the, of the action we don't see. It happens away from the, from, from, from the cameras. We, we don't know what goes on. And that makes the statistical analysis of it more difficult, I would have thought. It, it, yeah. That's one thing that adds to the to, to the challenge of it. It's not like a football match where you can see everything that, that goes on and yeah. therefore compiling and collating the statistics is relatively straightforward. Yeah, there are two big challenges. Uh, any sport that embarks on this kind of um, sort of re-evaluation, one is identifying which statistics to look at, which data to look at. And, and really, um, in cycling teams are only starting to scratch the surface of that sky are you know have looked at various parameters and obviously physiological data is a big thing in cycling and becoming increasingly important you know um, simply how big a guy's engine is but also you know looking at the right data which will be which will give you a better understanding of what wins races the second difficulty is that it really does boil down to manpower um, and, and that's the same in football um, there are quite sophisticated <coughs> systems now in place for analysing football matches having said that Opta which are the main agency that produces um, data for football matches they simply rely on guys sitting in front of computers mm. and logging you know, every single thing that happens in a football match and they have you know hundreds of employees now and Premier League teams themselves are now employing you know, anywhere between four and eight people on their staff purely to watch games and um, you know, input data. One of the interesting things in, in the chapter is that you know, if, if teams are, if all, if all teams have the aim of winning, mm-hmm. then none of them would put riders in breaks because breaks statistically don't succeed, especially nowadays with, with race radios and so on. And it is a fascinating um, prospect to imagine that if statistics did become uh, accurate and useful and were used by teams, you could have this scenario where racing becomes so controlled, yeah. as it is now by one or two teams. You know, yeah. teams that are, you know, like Sky, uh, HTC as well, were, were guilty of shutting races down. Yeah. And and you know, you'd never see an HTC rider in a break. You'll never see a Sky rider in a break. 
Um, one, one of the things on the, the, the sort of classification of riders that I found really interesting in the chapter was somebody like Christian Keniz, who was picked up by Sky very late at the end of a mm, season when yeah. Milram had gone He'd been down. discarded, hasn't he? He'd been yeah, discarded. Yeah. Nobody had picked him up. Mm. He'd finished 20th in the Tour riding for himself with no real goals, yeah. turned himself inside out for a team that had no real kind of battle plan yeah. or, or mm. desire to support him. But they picked him up and turned him into a, a bunch engine, somebody to get on the front, yeah. do a lot of work on those... Um, intermediate stages effectively shadowed Wiggins around the Tour de France yeah. and as Shane Sutton said to me when they first got him he was an absolute steal in terms of salary because yeah. no one else recognised the job he could do uh-huh. and when you look at the, the way the UCI rankings are going now in the broader scheme of things he, he literally has no value yeah. you know, nobody else is going to pick him I, up and what, what's really interesting on. about that as well is that like, you could imagine teams ruling him out on the basis that here was a guy who was a decent GC rider in stage races but he was too tall too big to ever make it whereas Sky have actually used that as a strength his size is the thing that makes him very good at his job you know in terms of shielding Wiggins in terms of giving him presence at the front of the bunch just providing shelter because for a lot of the tour they actually rode off to the side of the bunch rather than in the bunch and so all these things that actually counted against him as a a stage trader actually make him better at the job he does now. Yeah, th- this was one of the things that really intrigued me um, when I was writing the chapter, and not just in cycling but in other sports, the whole kind of money ball concept was these sort of physical, they're often they're, they're physical warts, warts um, Billy Bean called them, um, but they're, they're kind of <coughs> often physical idiosyncrasies which will affect the subjective judgment of a rider, a player, um, and you know, for the most part, these are still the criteria that govern a lot of um, a lot of selection. So, you know, to give an example that I use in the book, for instance, someone like Matt Goss. Now, Bob Stapleton said to me that, in his opinion, um, Matt Goss was someone who was undervalued, partly because of the team that he'd been in, that was Saxo Bank, and he'd not been getting the opportunities, but also partly, purely, because of the way he looked on a bike. You know, he was kind of hunched over the handlebars, he wasn't the most um, stylish rider. Whereas someone like Filippo Pozzato, um, a couple of agents mentioned to me that, you know, he, he's very prominent, he, he's got... I mean, there are examples that can seem ridiculous. In, in professional football, various agents have... Um, they've realised that blonde players, for instance, are overvalued because simply because scouts recognise and remember them. They catch the eye. They catch the eye. So it's a subconscious thing. It it's is, not, yeah. It's not a deliberate yeah. bias for... for it wasn't, I love the quote from the agent about Pozzato, he can't win a race if you push him. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he is somebody who is, you know, a rider that, that, that has a big salary and has a high yeah. profile. And yet he never wins a race. No. Looking at what's happened just recently with Matt Bramier struggling to mm. get a contract, let go by Omega Farmer, despite a good workforce yeah. role that he's got in that team, um, and, and uh, Posthumer's just apparently announced his retirement yeah. because he doesn't feel that he's, the work he's done is recognised or valued. We're in danger here of a lot of that hidden work that is absolutely necessary to the life of the peloton is going to be disregarded to such an extent that these guys are just, you know, who, who's going to do all of, all of the donkey work and the leg work if teams are recruiting solely on the basis of the UCI ranking? And the point about Daniel's chapter is that um, in assessing the value of a rider, the UCI rankings are disproportionately important because they place too much emphasis on just the, the guy who wins the race. And the people who get their teammate to the line help control the race, helps shape the race, they're not getting any um, recognition at all in terms of UCI points. And we're back to the 1990s era of points meaning prizes again. What's yeah. the incentive for yeah. these guys? I would say that it, it will affect the, mi- the middle and lower ranked teams more because... You know, if you think about the roster of a team like Sky, they have enough points. I mean, that's the interesting thing. No one really cares about where they finish in the rankings as long as they make the cut to remain in the World Tour. So you don't, you know, Sky aren't necessarily interested in finishing the World, uh, finishing the World Tour rankings in first place. So they will get enough points to remain in the division. So, you know, they will do that with four riders. So with the rest of their roster, they can concentrate on, you know, valuable riders to their cause who might not necessarily have. Um, a lot of points whereas for other teams that's a luxury they can't afford you know they have to fill their teams with 
you know, guys who really, when you put them all together, when you amalgamate them, are probably not very useful. Um, but you know, you have to have them in place at the start of the season to ensure that you're in the world tour. And, and this was one thing Bob Stapleton said that you know the whole philosophy of their team was picking up guys who who were undervalued and, and also developing young talents. Now you simply can't fill your team with that kind of guy. Now you have to have um, the established riders and, and guys who you know perhaps have been um, you know finishing sixth, seventh, eighth in races not particularly useful again to a team with big ambitions but you have to have that kind of run not, not to jump to the defence of the, the UCI but it's the, I mean the, the problem that, that they have in, in in assessing riders is the same that you cover in the chapter it, it's the sport is problematic the, the, there is a huge challenge in trying to assess the value and the Ability of riders, and it's just—it's one of these—it's one of the things that fascinates us most about cycling. It's what makes it so interesting. Uh, but it is a challenge, and it is something that that that, that they have to somehow. Well, they have to—they have to do it because the pressure has come from the Grand Tour organisers who they want a system in place which qualifies teams yeah. and governs which teams take part because <laughs> um, we know how controversial that used to be yeah. when it was more based on um, what it was based on wild, wild cards yeah. and um, but yeah I think there are improvements UCI could make I mean one suggestion which seems to me like a good suggestion that's quite simple perhaps simplistic is giving attributing points to riders when they are part of, part of a team that has won a particular stage or a particular race, so yeah. any domestique who's contributed to a good result would yeah. get points. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure there's much more you could do. Yeah, that needs to be looked at. I think quite mm. seriously. I was just going to say, in terms of the the rankings and rewarding people for being a member of a team, even that is problematic because you could look at a race like the Tour of Flanders and a rider who pulled out after 150k, having worked their socks off for yeah. the eventual winner, or somebody who rode 180k or 200k but didn't actually contribute in a strategic way yeah. it's a real it, the problem with any kind of ranking is trying to uh, apply the objective to the subjective and and I think the, that was a thing that came out in the chapter which is that um, everybody whose job depends on being successful or justifying their sponsorship pounds, dollars, euros mm is looking for a way to quantify success and justify and report back and say this is what we've achieved yet they're trying to quantify a sport that is so complex and changes on a daily basis, hourly basis and uh, it's going to be really interesting over the coming years to see which of the theories you've touched on have come to fruition and which which don't I guess. Great, well it's a a cracking read Daniel, thank you very much This is the Cycling Anthology Podcast Now read the book Available from cycleanthology.com. We're nearing the end of our inaugural podcast. Just a couple more things to talk about. I did mention earlier on the, the fact that the, the book that probably opened up the, the market for cycling books in, in the English language was It's Not About the Bike. And it wasn't Lance Armstrong's fictional autobiography about his comeback from cancer and his, his victory in the in, in Tour de France. I think it covered his first tour, didn't it? I think it did, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's something quite uncomfortable about that. You know, it was Armstrong who probably brought an awful lot of the, the new cycling fans into the sport. I mean, how do we feel about the recent developments in the Armstrong story, his, his downfall, I guess we can call it now? Um, will people disappear? Having been brought into the sport because of Armstrong and, and maybe attracted to cycling writing after reading his what is a very what is a very good book how do you, how do you feel about it Lionel? I hope they don't disappear because there's an awful lot more to the sport of the sport of professional cycling to uh, to pinch Paul Sherwin's catchphrase there's an awful lot more to it than, than just Lance Armstrong well there is now there certainly is now and there, there must be because I, I, one of the things I was most uncomfortable about about the Armstrong years was how the whole sport became reduced down, boiled down to the exploits of one man against all of his rivals and it really was Lance against the world and that was the narrative and I think if we're talking about writing and storytelling, the, the, the biggest legacy of Armstrong's era is that he dictated the narrative absolutely for seven to ten years and he was completely in control and is a master storyteller and it's not about the bike and every second counts are incredibly engaging 
entertaining. You know, they really are the kind of cliche the crafted they're, books. They're the they? cliched, rip roaring read, page turners. Mm. Unfortunately, even reading, um, it's not about the bike and his his initial account of what how a dope test works. It was hammed up. It was it was manufactured. It was it was it was. The stories were told in a way to, uh, to appeal to, to, appeal uh, to people, to well. appeal to a mass market, but also to single out Armstrong as the swashbuckling hero up against everybody else, up against the world. Everyone's out to get him. Even the process of no. peeing into a bottle is, well, is yeah. made into a dramatic event. Well, while we are, we are championing cycling writing in this collection, the Armstrong case also exposed the, the limitations of cycling writing, of journalism. You know, there, 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 are certain, there are certain journalists who've obviously emerged from the Armstrong case with great credit, and deservedly so. But in the final analysis, it wasn't journalism that brought Armstrong down. Journalism actually failed when it came to Armstrong for reasons that you've touched on there, that Armstrong controlled the narrative. And one of the ways he did that was by employing very expensive, very effective lawyers. Um, there's also difficulties, clearly, in writing about suspicion in the absence of hard evidence, which was a problem that cycling journalists had during the the Armstrong period. I think journalism created a momentum, and whether or not you know that contributed to a sequence of events which finally occurred um, is a is a moot point. I mean, you could trace it back and say, well, you know, what what was what was it essentially that caused you know the Armstrong scandal to finally come to a head? It was probably Floyd Landis. Um, and his confession. Now, you know whether the report, which owed to his his attempts, his doomed attempts to get onto Armstrong's team, Radio yeah. Shack, and his rejection from that team, yeah, and his revenge, yeah, which owed to Armstrong's comeback. Yeah, but whether you know Landis might have confessed one day had the not being had he not had an awareness of the, the sort of pressure um, that had been put on Armstrong over the years and the interest, the appetite for the truth, you know, it's, it's a difficult call to make. So I think journalism did play some role, but, yeah, I mean, certainly didn't come up with the smoking gun that... No, um, the, the certain people set, set I, I think the thing is, you know, and, and I, as a, as a um, you know, I've observed and, and followed the work done by David Walsh since 99. I think I've said my first tour was... Uh, in 1999 as a, covering it as a journalist knowing you know you can't appreciate what a bewildering world it is to be dropped into the Tour de France you know a, a week or so into it expected to know what happens and who everybody is and how it all operates I mean it's a phenomenally bewildering place to try and get a handle on what's going on let alone to work and get to the truth of what's happening and I just remember meeting David Walsh for the first time and I one of only a handful of times I've ever spoken to him and saying in my very keen new kind of new kid on the blocks way so do you think uh, who do you think going to win the tour Mr do you think, Walsh yeah do you, do you think uh, do you think Lance can, can hang on to the jersey and, and David Walsh just said I'm not interested in who wins the tour I'm interested in how he does it and that together with a few other things started to, the ball rolling to my own kind of suspicions opened my own eyes as to what was going on but the, there was a steel wall around that team at the time getting to chat to Chan McRae at the 2000 I mean he was Mapai, I know but you know getting to chat to anyone from that kind of American world of, of cycling and there was a reason and, for that you know the Moto yeah. Man and people like that you know it was yeah, a, there was as, as the Standard Report makes clear it was a very sophisticated <coughs> operation designed for people not to find out about it and the only way we did eventually find out about it was by people from within that circle telling us. But I think if you read LA Confidential, which was never published in English, yeah. and if you read from, La from Lance to Landis, both David Walsh's books, um, he wrote LA Confidential with Pierre Ballester, both brilliant books in their way, but compared to the USADA document, compared to the story yeah. Tyler Hamilton's recently told, yeah. how much... How close did David Walsh even get? You know, he got sort of ten percent of the story. So much of it was hidden from view. So much of it was, um, and and whilst I think journalism failed in a way because it wasn't, um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a pit bull at the throat of Armstrong for seven years. There was too much acceptance of that narrative because that narrative was, it was attractive and it was mm. kind of Hollywood slash Disney. I also think that. The, you know, in, in everything David Walsh did, 
tremendous though it was, compared to the USADA report, it's child's play. It didn't really produce the, the damning final evidence that could nail Armstrong. No. And all that, all that could was, you know, the pressure put on by a federal investigation and by USADA. My first tour was 2005, Lance's final tour. Although I'd worked as a journalist for a few years, I went there pretty naive, pretty wide-eyed now when I look back at it. And, you know, it took me a few days to really appreciate just how ingrained the suspicion was. You know, people, it wasn't suspicion, it was people knew that Armstrong and the scene were cheating, but there were a lot of very disillusioned people in the press room um, because they couldn't, you know, you can't write that you suspect them of cheating. You can't, you, there, there are limits to what you can write. And you are forced, in fact, to report on the race and what happens in the race. And, just and, and, to, just and to you, can, you can bury your, you can, you know, you, you can write your reports in such a way that a, a, an intelligent reader can infer from what you think. <clears throat> also, you said everyone was certain. You, you're never certain well, until no, you see I, it. Well, I say that. I mean, I, I, I'm looking at that's with hindsight yeah. saying that. I'm saying that the suspicion, the extent of the suspicion did surprise me at the time. Yeah. And we all felt certain. You know, a lot of us felt certain, but until you see it with your, eye, with your own eyes there is that, always that mm. element of doubt and he was very good at introducing that element of doubt there were times when you did actually think well call blimey you know I might have got this wrong you know yeah. um, blimey you know that you're right you're absolutely right there, there have been moments I, I'm saying it was, there was a tipping point I suppose with the sheer weight of evidence but you know even when Landis came out with his stuff on the one hand you think well why would he lie that's a very compelling reason to believe him but on the other hand, he, he had told me a lot of lies yeah. previously. I mean, how do you feel that another recent um, contribution to the the body of cycling literature is, of course, Tyler Hamilton book, which is, is again, a rollicking read, um, a, a compelling read. But I'm pretty uncomfortable with it, I must admit, because, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to disassociate what's in the book and how, just how good a reader it is with the author Tyler Hamilton who is somebody I'm very uncomfortable with his elevation to the status of some kind of whistleblowing hero um, this is a guy along with Floyd Landis who almost destroyed the anti-doping system the very system that they are now professing to be trying to help um, and I don't know while I can forgive doping I can, I can understand the circumstances that lead someone to dope which is very well outlined in, in David Miller's book, another contributor to the anthology we should That's have right, mentioned. Yeah. Um, I have less sympathy with somebody who dopes and then lies repeatedly about it, and in the process of doing so, almost destroys the system that is that we all need to, to try and police and keep sport. I think clean. the important thing is the truth, um, and if that truth has to be told in a best-selling book but um, presumably secured a healthy advance and uh, good sales then so be it the story of uh, you know Tyler Hamilton's story the, the, where I feel slightly resentful is that both Landis and Hamilton the, the extent to which they went to cover up what went on in cycling I think it's is, all, is, is understandable yeah but to now to now say how how terrible they felt about it and how they felt how bad they felt covering up all those lies really only came to the point where they had no other option but to tell the they truth. They didn't feel, yeah, and if you read the book closely, they didn't feel bad about it. You know, they, they talk about having a great time in those years. You know, the sense uh, of when, uh, yeah, when they're actually narrating those years, 2003, 2004, 2004, there's no sense, okay. Tyler Hamilton suffered from depression, but I think by his own admission, that had nothing to do with his doping. That was something that you know he feels is a part of of his his makeup. makeup. Yeah, and, and also Hamilton, lest we forget, uh, you know the the, the 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 narrative now is also it was Lance's fault. Mm. You know, Lance made me do it. Um, Hamilton was a hardcore doper before uh, Armstrong came back, and after he left Armstrong's side. His doping became more sophisticated. You know, he went to greater lengths. Yeah, to but I think that 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 um, the fact that cycling imposed a doping culture 
rather than one yeah. individual. I think is, is a message you take yeah. not only from Tyler's yeah. book but also from Paul Kimmage's Rough yeah. Ride. But is that this culture existed, and in the in the in the early 1990s, the, the game changed yeah. because instead of instead of fighting with uh, yeah. with spears and arrows, they were fighting with okay. machine guns. That so was what, really what, the analogy. What, what I'm getting at suppose, is what is the moral difference between Lance Armstrong and Tyler Hamilton? Uh, Tyler Hamilton has uh, has confessed. Okay, and, and I don't mean now. I mean what 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 is I mean in terms of how they how they behave during their careers. What's the moral difference between them? I think the thing the thing in in life is uh, Lance Armstrong won seven tours in a row and was the was the top man for all of those years. You're more cynical, but still, and you know, in terms of there's no real difference in what they did. No. One was just more successful than the other. Yeah, but. In order to, it's a bit like the, the old cliche about the mafia. You know, you take down the mafia boss, um, and if the mafia boss isn't Armstrong, but it's actually above him, then then the the, the whole sort of quest for uh, truth, justice, and reconciliation should continue past Lance Armstrong. And I think we're going to see in the in the continuing fallout with the Kimmage case and the UCI, we, we may get a bit closer. <coughs> to to You're right. Yeah, 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 just, just last thing on that, Rich. And if you look historically, that. The moment when the fortress really started to crumble the day when Armstrong left the Tour de France in 2005, you, know, you can say, well, what, what got us to this point now? And it's, it's not one thing, it's a whole series of things. It's Operation Puerto, it's Michael Rasmussen, it's you know, Bernard Cole, etc., etc. But a lot of those things, not all of them, but a lot of those things would not have happened under the Armstrong regime because you know, he managed to... He had control, you know. Not it wasn't necessarily his fault. It wasn't necessarily something that he sought out. He sought to do, but it was just, it was how things ended up that he was in control of a lot of that. And as soon as he left, then you know, it, it, anarchy ensued, and that anarchy created fertile conditions for you know the whole lie to be exposed. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's true. I was just playing devil's advocate earlier, obviously. <laughs> the cycling anthology. Great writing about the world's best sport. We were inundated with questions we on were, Twitter when we, the, were, when we asked for questions. The best one comes from James Kelly, who the asked best about... One. The, I think we spent a long time <laughs> considering the yeah, questions. We came from uh, the James Kelly, one. and he asked about the future of the hour record. And uh, it's an interesting one, because I think the, uh, the hour record is certainly it's not a part of the cycling landscape that it was, perhaps no. in, the, in the 1990s. But... Although it wasn't either between '84 and Graham Abreu's no, attempt, I mean, it, it, you know, Moser put it on the shelf. Was the was the received wisdom? Yeah. And then Boardman and O'Brien came along. Boardman and O'Brien, and that's what it might take. It might take somebody from left field to put it back on the on the map because it. And there will. It, I mean, it's what is it anyway? I mean, is is it Boardman's? Are we talking about Boardman's athletic no, record or? We're talking about Sosenka's record. I think that's, oh, of course. Sorry, I think that's yeah, part sorry. of the problem, isn't it? <laughs> well, they're 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 the problem yeah. is illustrated. I mean, where where did Sosenka set that record? It was on Moscow. some. Was it and is that an indoor track? It's a very yeah. fast track. Yeah. But it's right. Okay, so basically that's the that's the mark. Oh, it's a very long track, isn't it? It's a very long track. Thirty meters, I think. Yeah. And, I mean, there are no rules either against second altitude, no. which nobody has done since Moser no. in '84. Um, and that's interesting because an, an endurance athlete, if they went and acclimatized at altitude, they would uh, Moser set to Mexico City. Yeah, but since the, the new the new record, the Sosenka record, you're not allowed to do that. At oh God, you're you're you really know your own record, don't you? I know why that is because you wrote a book about Eddie Merckx. No, no, he interviewed Sosenka. Ah. He yeah, is I'm good. really unprepared for this. But look, I think one of the one of the <laughs> problems is that a lot. So of you're not allowed to set at altitude anymore. I'm pretty sure you're not. Yeah. Pretty right. sure you're not. This yeah. is the athlete hour that Chris Borden yes. basically yeah. invented, yeah. really, wasn't it? He went yeah. to the UCI and said, "Let's strip it back." Well, Eddie Merckx invented it. Didn't the other yeah. thing is that, yeah. but but the, the Eddie Merckx record, the, the sort of. Um, the progression of that went all the way through to yeah. Rominger and Indian yeah. and, and all of that yeah, yeah, in, in yeah. the 90s yeah. where it was just getting faster and so Boardman and also Boardman has the ultimate yeah. record which is 56 something isn't it yeah, yeah. but there's, the also, there's also there's um, also no real consensus about whether it is better to do altitude or not because there's obviously pros and cons at altitude the air is thinner you go faster yeah. but you suffer more because yeah that's true yeah. you're yeah. taking less oxygen it's yeah. Um, it's a pretty close. I think I know Chris Boardman feels that it's, it pretty much evens out. Yeah. Um, 
I think unless you did at altitude with oxygenated blood, yes, as Mozart may may well have done in exactly. 84. Mozart did do in 84 yeah. with with extra blood. But obviously, one of the big problems That's is not the, anymore. the UCI is taking a lot of the impetus. A lot of the impetus for doing the hour record used to come from equipment manufacturers. It was a great showcase for them, and that has now gone. I mean. I, I can't really see an equipment, a major equipment manufacturer putting pressure on someone to try the hour record on what is essentially you know, a, a, a round tube steel bike. It's also which, a bloody hard thing to do, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Um, and guys I mean, are not, I mean, <coughs> they're not, I remember the, the pain that Borman was in after that hour record, more so than any of his mm. previous hour record attempts. It's not a comfortable position to be in, actually, for, no. for that length of time. And, I mean, Bradley Wiggins is the obvious yeah. candidate to go for it. I mean, I just think it's so, um, you know, it's so telegenic as well. I mean, <coughs> I, I can imagine, especially with Sky on board with Bradley Wiggins now, yeah, what a great TV event would that would be if you had Bradley Wiggins doing the hour uh, record. And then, for instance, you know, if you had Fabian Cancellara doing it an hour after him, yeah. you know, what a great sort of televisual package that would be and it's easy to understand you know the British public still not particularly au fait with how the Tour de France works etc but you know the hour record is nothing to understand is it, is it, I mean is it a hard record to beat though I mean is, is it yeah I think so I mean I think yeah. it's months and months and months of specific yeah. preparation yeah. and you know wind tunnel testing and getting the bike absolutely right getting the getting the rider right mm. and, and, and working out the science behind how to put together the, the optimum performance over an hour because obviously as pretty we're, miserable riding like that around a track for an yeah, hour yeah very miserable I mean I remember being at, the, at Manchester for the athletes hour record that Bourbon mm. set and the look on his face as he came around the bends in front of where we were we were in a track centre yeah. it, it just looked like it was it was a, a picture of suffering mm. as great as I've ever seen on a, on a bike <coughs> yeah. it, was, it looked like it looked like an event that there's nobody on the track, so it's it's not even a it's not even a race. It's not even a there's no character chase. There's no incentive to push yourself any harder other so than I, I, knowing I that that's what you're going to do. It's a event. I think if uh, I don't know whether it'd be telegenic, but it would certainly it would certainly it's certainly very understandable for the yeah. for the public. Yeah. How far can you? Who can ride the fastest? Yeah. The furthest in one hour yeah. is is interesting. I think the problem with the whole thing now is that with the regulations and the fact that yeah. Sosenka went and did it with no one watching in Moscow that we've all forgotten <laughs> yeah we've all forgotten um, the problem is that um, it, it, uh, from the athlete's point of view that you know if, if you're if you're going faster in a race if you're suffering more the more you suffer at least you have the consolation of finishing a bit quicker. Mm. The problem in the, the <laughs> record is it's that as hard as you minutes. go, as, as much as you suffer, you're not going to get to the finish any quicker. No. And that must be very hard mm. mentally, I think. But we, we know how attached to the history of the sport Wiggins is, and he's talked in the last few weeks about his last remaining goals really in cycling being things like Paris-Roubaix and, and Giro d'Italia. And the hour record was something that, if it was lacking from your Palmares, you didn't have a... a you didn't have a complete, you know, the legends of the sport for a long time. Um, it was always on yeah. the Palmares. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to propose finally an anthology hour record. Everyone who contributes to the anthology does an hour record. I'll do about fifty attempt. words. And what? what? Oh, no, I thought no, you meant actually, actually, you mean actually, actually on the bike. How much you can write in an hour? Actually on the bike. No, I let's think, not bother. Well, we all have a go at breaking the hour record. Well, no, not breaking the hour record, but setting a benchmark. But uh, not just a playing. benchmark. Yeah, my money's on you, Richard. I think my money would be. My well. money would not be on Richard. Yeah, Richard's not nearly as good on a bike as people think. This is the Cycling Anthology Podcast. Now read the book. Available from cyclingthology.com. Okay, thank you very much for listening to this inaugural debut Cycling Anthology Podcast. Um, first of an irregular series. There'll maybe be two or three around the publication of each volume, which could be two or three times a year. The next one, I think, will be for the 100th tour next year so it should come out around about June but um, this one is really good uh, and you can buy it from www.cyclinganthology.com also available from prendas.co.uk only 7 99 hopefully lots of you will buy it and hopefully lots of you will listen again to the podcast thanks Lionel thank you and thank you Daniel thank you and uh, goodbye from me as well 